Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Vogel. Stephen is Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University College of Osteopathy and Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Osteopathic Medicine. He has twice been a member of the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence, or NICE, Guideline Development Groups, formulating clinical guidelines for back pain and sciatica. Stephen has led the large clinical risk and osteopathy and management study, which examined adverse events and outcomes related to osteopathic interventions. His main research interests focus on back pain, clinicians' beliefs and attitudes, and more recently, reassurance, communication and consent, safety and manual therapy, patient reported outcomes, self-management rehabilitation strategies used in practice with people with low back pain, and the effects of cognitive and affective reassurance. So in this episode, we talk about what constitutes ethical and professionally agnostic MSK care. We talk about the early research in psychology of low back pain, of which he was a crucial part. We talk about the cyclical nature of current arguments in MSK care, such as hands-on, hands-off, psychological factors, manipulation, etc. Stephen tells us the different levels or fizzy drink scale of psychologically informed practice and the psychological process involved in clinical practice. We talk about the challenges of developing these skills and clinicians and the questions up for debate, such as what does it mean to be BPS or psychologically informed and what sorts of training best develops these competencies. We talk about the frequent situation where psychological interventions have high face validity, make sense to us as clinicians, but show small effect sizes when clinically trialed. And Stephen tells us about his seminal 2013 systematic review looking at cognitive and effective reassurance. We reflect on the signs of progress and lack of progress of psychologically informed musculoskeletal practice. And finally, we discuss the challenge of measuring BPSness and the empirical actions and observable behaviours associated with such a clinical orientation. Stephen is perhaps the most measured, rational, and composed individual I know. He remains totally zen even when being faced with some of the highest intellectual dishonesty in the manual physical osteopathy spheres. As a colleague at UCO and IJOM, it was an absolute pleasure speaking to Steve. It's rare we have the time at work to sit down and really reflect on his work and how far we've come and how far we haven't come in relation to psychologically informed musculoskeletal practice. So I bring you Stephen Vogel. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks for inviting me. Nice to be here. So we know each other intimately from work. And obviously we work together at the UCO and our offices are next door. But perhaps you could introduce yourself, your clinical background, your academic background. and Look, I, I graduated in the late 80s um, from what was the British School of Osteopathy and um, kind of got into osteopathy sort of by chance, thought I'd give it a couple of years and did that for um, about 10 years, reviewing every two years uh, what was happening. 
and um, then stopped reviewing until I sort of hit about 50. Um, and I started off, uh, you know, I kind of did, did well in what was the diploma in osteopathy, um, got interested in, in, in kind of research and thinking about some of the tenants and some of the premises underneath osteopathy early, early on. Started off my career uh, as a, um, well, actually, I got a very, very unusual back in 89, I think it was, very early post for the NHS. I worked in um, uh, a long stay, thankfully, these places don't exist anymore, but a long stay hospital for uh, people with profound learning and behavioral difficulties. Worked there for six months, uh, didn't have a, <laughs> didn't even have a, a grade for an osteopath working on the NHS. And I remember them, the, their HR working so hard and putting me on an administrative grade because they couldn't figure out how to pay me and how to do things with me. Um, so I, I did that for a bit and also did a little bit, started off in, in as a kind of research assistant at what was the British School of Osteopathy and also worked a little bit in private practice. And um, then sort of in parallel developed a bit uh, my research sort of skills slowly in the beginning <laughs> um, and then got into the opportunity arose to work for the NHS in a more uh, appropriate primary care setting and I worked at Stockwell Group Practice which was a fantastic uh, GP practice big practice about 70,000 patients on the list and that came out of some funding moving money from secondary care into primary care at the time and um, I ended up having annual renewable contracts for about 20 years <laughs> and i finished in 2014 when they realigned the pathway and they couldn't cope with a kind of pocket of osteopathy that they had pockets in lambeth southwark and lewisham and that that kind of got stopped and i still miss nhs work my kind of heart is in uh care free at the point of delivery and along that period of time developed an interest more and more interest in research and work with some great great people and colleagues, mentors and others, um, and was always playing catch up. And now I find myself finally pretty much full-time academic. And uh, I, I work at UCO and I um, lead the research team, uh, but responsibilities for managing, kind of high-level responsibilities for managing the clinic, although my fantastic colleague, uh, Francesca Wiggins, really leads on that. Same with CPD, and I know you've interviewed Jerry already, um, and uh, yeah, various other duties at University College of Osteopathy. In terms of academically, I think my um, my academic qualifications. I'm in this weird position. I'm one of those people who supervises doctoral students and successfully got a few through with some. Well, I haven't got them through. They've done all the work, as is always the case with doctoral level cert. But I've sort of hung on the right ride um, normally fairly quickly. Um, they supersede my knowledge and skills. Um, and so I'm in the opposition of supervising people without a PhD. My own PhD history was, um, you know, back in the early 90s, it was really hard to get them onto a doctoral program. Um, and I'd, I'd met with uh, Lorraine Nankies, psychologist, and um, we'd, we'd kind of I met her at the Research Council of Complementary Medicine meetings, which I went to, I think, began going to those in the late part of my studies and then hung out with her. So they spent a lot of time worrying about research methodology. 
and kind of something which the narrative you don't see so much now, thankfully, but it's still knocking about, which goes something like complementary medicine is so um, individualistic and person-centered. None of the methodologies work that could possibly capture the the benefits of, of complementary medical therapies because they're holistic and research is reductionistic and, you know, mechanistic and dualist and all those other things and and i think i quickly realized those tenants didn't really hold but i met lorraine there and i met david Cantor there professor david Cantor, and he was um most famous for his offender profiling work uh, very you know great academic very nice man um his one of his claims to fame was um he was the consultant psychologist who helped support the investigation to catch the Yorkshire Ripper. And he used um, facet theory, which is a particular complex methodology, despite reading about it for about 20 years, I don't really understand. Um, and complex multidimensional scaling around, in that instance, geographical profiles to try and use um, uh, measurement and um, multi-dimensional scaling methods to hone down on on the behavior and in this instance um, with the Yorkshire Ripper it was to do with his geography and so I signed up I, I kind of got accepted um, at the University of Surrey it was then in the department of psychology and I did an advanced kind of research methods and kind of master's unit there and started a PhD and David moved up to Liverpool and so I followed him up those were the days where they when academics moved about it was kind of like league division transfers and you take your team with you and this that the other bit like they've tried to stop doing with the research excellence framework now no he went up to liverpool wanted me to come along too and carry on supervising me and um it was bubbling along i probably wasn't mature enough to do a phd then and i uh, kind of made some progress but ended up stopping because my partner um, became ill and she was sort of supporting my studies and so I, I stopped my PhD. So I now find myself supervising doctoral students and the like but without the qualification which is you know, normally associated with that role uh, and you know academically I've, I've benefited enormously from working, hanging around at conferences, meeting people, working with folks over time um, and sort of, you know, just hung about enough to get involved, really, and committed to involvement. And uh, slowly but surely moved more and more into academia, um, mostly because, in fact, you know, now thinking out loud, you know, I, I realised I, I moved to become more full-time in order that I could, I wouldn't be the last person to comment on a manuscript and have nothing to add, which would always happen when I was, you know, doing kind of three days a week clinically or whatever. But although I am now pretty much full-time academic, it still happens. <laughs> I'm still the last person often to comment, <laughs> but it, it depends. Just life gets busy, doesn't it? I guess I can. I can. Even though you're an osteopath and you work, we both work at the UCO. I think one thing we have we have in common is we're, we're kind of professionally agnostic in the sense that we don't seem to be. I'm speaking for you now, but I'm also speaking for myself. We're not. Go ahead. You can cut the whole podcast. You know, it can be much, much easier this way. You can just fill in for me all the way through. Go for it. But whilst I'm sure there are some kind of vague affinities to osteopathic practice and some of the potentially some of the, the ideas which kind of float around the profession or the practice, that you know, looking at your 
the work you've done, the research you've done, you've worked with obviously many different health professionals. Moreover, most of your research work has been pan osteopathy, meaning that it's just kind of flown above in fact, all of any particular manual therapy. So lots of your psychologically focused work was based in back pain care, which wasn't necessarily kind of anchored to any one particular professional perspective. But And I know you, so I know that whilst you're deputy vice chancellor of the UCO, and of course you've got to kind of fly an osteopathic flag, at the heart it's about I think of again. I'm speaking for you. I could have done this without you, Steve. But the heart of your, the heart of your of your main concerns is kind of good patient care and good ethically informed and evidence informed practice, regardless of the professional label. Yeah, look, you know, for me, for me, this early doors, it, it was clear. You know, partly evidenced by my wanting to and working for the NHS. It's about access to good quality care. And um, I think if you do, you know, believe that osteopaths delivering musculoskeletal care and rehabilitation have got a role to play, the, the, the duty almost is to extend it to all. Uh, and the same goes for research, really. And I, and I feel kind of strongly about this. I've said it, uh, you know, I've said this in lots of four. It's really obvious that professions don't exist for professions. <laughs> you know, professions exist to deliver care. You know, there's no profession without the patient. And when you start doing stuff wholly for the profession, you're, you're moving into, I think, some quite difficult to sustain arguments about the, the kind of morals and ethics of what you're doing. So at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, whoever it is delivering the best care they can in a way that's accessible to patients. And actually, it doesn't matter who that is, as long as it's good quality care. And, and we do that because our role is to support patients to live as well as they can at any particular time. And that, those sort of global tenets or principles of care go across professions. And as soon as we start acting more so for the pursuance of um, aggrandisement, of the professional itself, we lose sight of that. And you know, one of the key principles is the key duties we have is to to put the needs of the patient, you know, and sometimes when there is conflict beyond our own potential need. And I think that stuff's really important. Um, and I, I fair maybe because of the Research Council Comprehensive Medicine early meetings, but I suppose later on I I, I, I worked with Alan Breen in the beginning, who's um, who's a professor, he's at the Anglo-European AECC University College, as they are now called, and um, did some work with him, um, doing some audit of some audit, developing some audit tools. He wanted a multidisciplinary group. And of course, you know, as soon as you meet other people from other disciplines and you realise that only they eat babies for breakfast and, you know, reasonable, I mean, of course there are, there are, a range of folks in different disciplines and some you get on with some you don't but as soon as you meet some people who are thinking critically mm -hmm. and and looking at doing good work it doesn't matter where they come from so i worked with alan as a chiropractor that was multidisciplinary and then i had the opportunity to work um in this i can't what was the name of it it had a very long name the musculoskeletal processes of care collaboration which was with professor rolls off the tongue yeah yeah it was a snappy title 
you know, all, all well, I suppose before social media, we might have given it a different name then. Um, and that was with um, a GP, Professor Martin Underwood. I mean, everyone, they're all professors now. Um, Professor Martin Underwood is a GP, an academic, great guy up at Warwick now. Um, um, Nadine Foster, Professor Nadine Foster, who, who again has had a kind of stellar career. And uh, Professor Tamar Pincus, who I've worked closely with, is a uh, um, and you know another made a great contribution to to back pain, musculoskeletal care, and rehabilitation, and psychology more generally. And we had a Alan Bream was in the team as well, and we also had a sociologist at the time uh, whose name he was kind of he moved on a bit. So, but Mike Harding, and then we had some PhD students uh, in and around that group, um, some of which you, you know or you might interview in the future, uh, you know, Professor Dawn Carnes was in the group, did a PhD within that that kind of group, the Sufis by Martin. Dave Evans, David Evans, who's now at uh, Birmingham and is an osteopath, and Dawn and Dave are osteopaths. Um, and Dave was supervised by Nadine, and I helped co-supervise Dave's work. And Suzanne Parsons uh, as well, who was at QMUL at the time, Queen Mary's, and she's, she, I can't remember where she's working now, but she, she went on. And we, we, we shared these uh, projects, we put them together from a multidisciplinary perspective, interprofessional perspective, looking at the process of care and how we can do things better. We had some, some good grants in those days and we shared and collaborated. And I think it was a funny little window of time where the osteopaths and chiropractors and physiotherapists were, it was a bit less siloed for a bit. And we were able to kind of promote this interprofessional work, which was really, really, really useful, really good times. So as, as when I was a kind of emerging, an emerging research, or, or at least had a interest, began to develop an interest, interest in research, and I would see, you know, what are, what can a researcher osteopath doing? I always imagined that you'd, you'd get these osteopaths just finding out that osteopathy is just, you know, just the panacea of all ailments. And then when we, when I saw you and that you were an osteopath doing research, it was, it was in kind of psychology, essentially. It was in you know, psychological aspects of back pain. You pursued an area of research which isn't kind of typically at the forefront of clinicians' minds, or at least osteopaths' minds. You know, so that wasn't, that wasn't, it's not the heart of osteopathic practice, so, you know, or at least back, particularly back then, you know, like the, in the kind of early 2000s or kind of late 1990s. It was interesting that you took that route. So I'm interested in how you ended up going down a psychological route. Um, yeah, I, I suppose it's a, a little bit torturous. Um, I don't know if Dave Evans listens to your podcasts, but I suppose it partly connects with a short answer, which is I'm a little bit of a, Dave calls me Mr. et al. Um, because I've contributed to lots of, great work but I haven't necessarily led it and I, I led some of the stuff on adverse events and that kind of stuff um so the short answer is is if I go back to me saying I, I hang out hung out with people I hung out with people and went with the flow that's the short answer the more detailed answer I suppose is probably a bit more reflective and it starts off with the story of working with um when I was a student with Kate Nash and we work with uh, we which is probably why I got the, the job working with um, 
uh, people with challenging behaviours and um, severe disability. We, we worked in a special needs school with um, children with uh, autism and profound disability, and I worked for many years in, a, a, in an adult residential care setting as well. And as part of that, we, we tried to figure out, you know, what, what's going on, really? <laughs> what, what's happening? We were hanging out with, with, hanging out with, we were treating, trying to treat patients, autistic, young children, and doing things with our hands and figuring out whether it worked or not. And we tried to develop a scale to do that. And actually, the scale Kate developed in the end was quite close to a, a well-used scale developed by Lorna Wing. But in our ignorance, we didn't know about that kind of thing and didn't know where to look back in the day for other work. It was a time when I, I used to have to go up to the British Library at the Aldwych and have to look for articles on microfiche. It was back in those days. <laughs> and um, so that started me interested, interested in behaviour as a kind of measurement thing. And having reflected on that, I think it's flipping hard when people don't talk to you. Uh, about telling you whether they got better or not. But as soon as you start thinking about that, it makes you think about how you work out what's effective and what isn't, and what works and what isn't. And I, it dawned on me quite quickly that it um, is pretty much equally hard figuring out what works and what doesn't work when people have got um, a full complement of behavioural and verbal communication and language skills. And in that context, I suppose I quickly got interested in the wider sense of kind of what works and what doesn't work. And I was always always a bit skeptical about about some of the, the sort of mechanical models about about bodies. They just seemed a bit too simplistic. You know, I I read an, an interest in evolution and it, it struck me that quite early doors that small movements and small adjustments or manipulations or whatever they might be if the body is quite a, a, a homostatic resistant to change that small movements and, uh, and and small adjustments are unlikely to have dramatic long-lasting uh, causal effects on the body otherwise we'd be in terrible trouble you know, i use a 133 to get into work as I get jostled about or sit a bit more on my left buttock more than my right buttock or, or, or whatever, whatever happens to me physically, if it was making these sustainable, sustainable changes to my musculoskeletal system, you know, I'm in trouble. So although I did well in my technical skills, competence in my exams, and I could, I could do fancy manipulations and this, that and the other, it always seemed to me that you know, that didn't seem to be really where things were working um and i suppose moving on with that having met tamar pincus and also i i suppose reading the i remember reading kim burton's the very first set of guidelines for acute back pain and i remember thinking gosh it's amazing that an osteopath has been kind of allowed to do this because these were still in the days where where patients would whisper to you you won't tell the doctor i'm seeing you you know do this still very much cottage industry and complementary medicine so it's great to see how far the profession has come in terms of acceptance that, that's good but i i suppose i quickly was more interested in in the kind of behavior and and self-management and what means stuff to patients uh, and then then having worked and gotten well with tamar 
Tamar Pincus came uh, and worked at the UCO or BSO as it was then with Pippa Bark, both psychologists. They taught the research methods units, stats and research methods. So I got to know Tamar well and I'm, I'm, I count her as a close friend. And so we were just kind of chatting about stuff and it seemed to me that, that, that psychology was important. My, my own observations of my clinical experiences uh, led me to to see that it's kind of stupid to not think of any therapeutic interaction as a psychological one. You know, other things go on as well. Yeah, other, other things go on as well. But, but clearly the psychology and the process of the consultation is important. Um, and and that, that's really why, why I got into it. And, and we were interested as a group, that group that, that convened in, I don't know when that was, I lose track of time, 2008-ish, 2010 maybe, when we were doing the processes of care stuff. Um, we didn't. We didn't just do the psychological research. I, I mostly have done that stuff with Tamar, which was probably after then. I, I lose my the, the the time frames and continuity of we did what we did when. Um, but we, we we were interested in looking at things like you know persistence of pain, decision making, you know how people decide and how people work with biopsychosocial models. And I also remember that whole thing with the initial 1996 RCGP acute back pain guidelines. They talked already about biopsychosocial. In fact, preparing for this, reading back to some of the early papers, the psychological factors paper in, in um, 2002, going right, right back then, there was this consider psychosocial factors was, was the recommendation in that early guideline, unless I got that wrong. And so immediately I think, well, consider what? What does that mean? Okay, I'll consider them. What do you do with them? You know, what, what, what's that about? And rereading that paper from 2002, um, you know, rereading that, uh, it's funny reading the introduction again. You know, it said you know, the, the biopsychosocial model is gaining ground. That was in 2002. And actually, it only really, honestly, feels like it's gained ground in the last kind of three or four years. And you know it's gaining ground because people are looking at revising it and criticizing it and moving on, which is fantastic now. But it's kind of bread and butter now. But I suppose back in the day, back then, um, the other kind of big influence was reading Gordon Waddell's work. And you know, Gordon's passed away now, but he was um, a bit like Kim Burton, who hasn't passed away, Kim's alive but well and up north. Um, Gordon and Kim are both fantastically generous. You know, Kim to this day, you email him, you reply kind of within 24 hours with help and advice. And Gordon Waddell was the same. When we started this systematic review, he did say, oh, you never get this done. Um, in six months and uh, it's too hard and um, we did it and that was a very successful paper and and having done that in 2000 2002 tomorrow and i were working on it with andy and kim you know it, it really was clear having looked at that literature and read it that the depression however you define it, it might not be true clinical depression it might be distress associated with pain being distinct from depression I mean, we can chat about that if you like, but um, <clears throat> it was clear that that really was an important thing. And people who had that early doors didn't do so well. And I think that, I mean, that, that paper has been very well cited, um, kind of over, it depends on whichever metric you use, but over a thousand odd times that paper has been cited. And so that, that, to some extent, that led people to try and look at interventions, psychologically focused interventions, see if it could change the course of back pain. 
And kind of once I was into that zone and I read that sort of stuff, it, 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 it became fascinating. The whole behavior change stuff, the whole um, self-coping, self-management, you know, how, how, how to help people live well with back pain seemed to be of great interest. But around that time, so, you know, so, so that paper, that's just a of you looking at psychological factors that, that kind of predicted more persistent or disabling back pain. Around that time in the early 2000s, the, the emphasis on on back pain care was, was what? I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't mainstream care. Psychologically informed practice wasn't, wasn't the standard model of practice around then. So, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering that what was the context of those, of those, that kind of seminal work, what was, what was currently going on in, in clinics? Well, you, you, you say that, you, you, you say that, but I think again, in the late eighties, I think, uh, you know, this is bringing to mind. I met, um, I went to a kind of a chronic pain conference, maybe when I was a student still, I remember meeting Jennifer Claiborne Moffat, Professor Jennifer Claiborne Moffat, who was, um, you know, very welcoming, fantastic uh, consultant. I don't know if she was a consultant, if they had them back then, physiotherapist, but she was a great academic. Um, and I remember her just so generous, you know, young osteopath and the conference was near her home. And I think she invited a gang of us back and was just so welcoming and great. And lots of that was talking about, well, it was talking about behavioral in- interventions for, behave- for, for persistent pain. So the stuff was around there, but it hadn't been focused on in the same way in back pain. And I think a, a great deal of the, the focus around that kind of um, approach to back pain, uh, well, it is coming of age now with um, kind of the O'Sullivan's and CFT, uh, cognitive functional therapy and, and various and acceptance of commitment therapy. Now, that's all coming to the fore, but, but actually kind of back in the day, it was really Gordon Waddell's The Back Pain Revolution, where he, where he articulated the, the kind of biopsychosocial model, you know, drawing on Engel and, and others. You know, that stuff was really exciting. It was fantastic. And the work that him and Kim and Ellsford, um, Mansell Ellsford did, and, you know, clearly Chris Main, psychologist at Keele, who's emeritus professor now, is another very welcoming, generous man with his intellect um, and with his ability to collaborate and kindness. You know, made huge contributions. They really laid the foundation for lots of this stuff. And I think Gordon and Kim and Chris, Gordon, Kim and Chris, developing the flag system, going beyond red flags to introduce yellow flags as um, kind of psychosocial indicators that are important, and black flags and blue flags. I know pink flags are around now, although orange flags have been a bit dumped. <laughs> um, but all of that stuff, that's the foundation. And it just shows about, you know, thinking about translational research and implementation. Now, literally, we are kind of whatever, 20 years later, and the stuff is kind of rolling into practice. Um, but all those ideas were, were very exciting. Even meeting, I can't remember when I met, I used to at the primary care forums for back pain, used to meet Johan Vlyan, chatting to Johan Vlyan about ideas when the fear avoidance model, he was just you know putting that out and publishing it. Um, I remember talking to him about that and suggesting that, having a conversation with Johan, suggesting that manipulation might be a form of uh, flooding. 
you know how with with, with fear and phobia you, you can flood you know if someone's scared of spiders yeah actually chuck them in a room full of them and they kind of or if you're scared water you throw them in a pool and they sink or swim and they yeah, they're flooded. <laughs> They've experienced it max, haven't died, and they're cured. Obviously, that doesn't work and people degraded exposure, but, you know, flooding was one approach. I remember suggesting that manipulation of the lumbar spine might be a form of flooding um, because someone who's anxious and worried about their spine, once it's been kind of wrestled with and crunched left and right and they're not doubly incontinent and can still walk, you know, the, that may well be a huge psychological intervention to deal with, you know, anxieties and worries about their low back pain. And, you know, he smiled wryly and said, oh, that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so I, I, I can't lay claim to, I certainly can't lay claim to say, oh, you know, I was a fantastic innovator, you know, because I was, I was outside of the, you know, most professions suffer from parochiality, certainly osteopathy, you know, back in the 80s, much of its history is only more so now. And it's great that our professional association and regulators are talking to other people, other disciplines are sitting around the table with others. But, you know, back in the early, um, late 80s, early 90s, it was very much a silo profession. But I'd chosen to sort of open my horizons and speak to other folks. And of course, there was a wealth of knowledge. There were lots of psychological thoughts and interventions, different models of care. Um, and, you, you know, you look at over the years, you look at how back pain care has, has changed um, and there have been fashions. You know, when the UK BEAM trial came out, manipulation was in and everyone learned how to do it and thought it was really exciting and then it's gone out again and hands off has come back in and exercises in and you know not touching patients is in and you know on, on it goes these these cycles of um, perceptions and fashions happen so i guess the the implementation is some of that early work with tamar and nadine and martin underwood you, know, you and tamar can have this uh kind of postgraduate cpd course which you you run intermittently and I, I know that you had one planned i think during the spring just gone yeah that's also with um lisa roberts who's yeah. a professor at southampton who's a physio by background and you called it or it's called kind of psychologically informed practice is how it's described that program in the course so i just wonder you if you could just tell us a bit about what it is to be psychologically informed because it's a really nice expression isn't it and you know what are some of the skills and attributes and concerns that psychologically informed clinicians should have no i think there are there are different levels with this um yeah tamar used an analogy somewhere i didn't see her deliver it but I heard of it from her and others it, it's a little bit like sweet fizzy drinks you know the full fat version the light version and the zero versions <laughs> Um, I think psychologically informed practice is is a little bit like that. I think if you turn it on its head, it's a bit like Edzard Ernst does with what's the opposite to evidence-informed, non-informed practice. It's the same with psychologically informed practice. Can you have psychologically not informed practice? Well, well, no, because we relate psychologically and socially to each other. So I think the baseline is that every consultation involves some sort of psych involves psychological processes. So if that's kind of Coke Zero, it happens. I think the next stage up, and probably Coke Zero-ish, 
is probably using um, just basic skills of active listening, reflection, summarizing, uh, responding to distress cues with acknowledgement, that kind of stuff to build rapport and empathy. And I think that's probably Coke Zero insofar as that those are requisites that a generic requisites that probably every practitioner should have. And, and you kind of look at the psychotherapeutic literature and you look at effectiveness is kind of the common cause depending independently of theoretical orientation because of it like MSK rehabilitation, you know, psychotherapeutics have got hundreds of different underpinning theoretical models, but the core determinants are a kind of rapport and communication skills. So call that, call that Coke Zero. If we go Coke Light, you're probably looking at having folks who have not got the skills of the clinical psychologist, which will be the full fat version, and are, are using approaches derived from psychological theory and practice to inform educational interventions, behavioral change, uh, they might be drawing on cognitive behavioral theory, um, or they might be looking at a kind of stress reduction, relaxation, or, or the more contextual, what's called now third wave cognitive behavioral stuff, acceptance and commitment therapy. So along that continuum, I think clinicians who do MSK rehabilitation can seek theoretical learning and practical learning to deliver care that's informed by some of those elements. So, for example, if you're interested in kind of behavior change education, it might be simple, simple as, as being well-versed in behavioral change theory and whether you use Susan Mickey's behavioral change model or um, stages of change model or, you know, there are lots around. That kind of stuff is psychologically informed practice. If you're moving up a stage and you're, you're kind of dealing with kind of self-efficacy, perceptions, kind of struggles with thinking thoughts and motivation and, and that kind of thing, you, you might get into learning about cognitive behavioral therapy and some theory there and or with acceptance and commitment um, therapy. Or you might kind of somewhere between Coke Light maybe and Coke Zero might be doing a motivational interviewing course mm. to improve your comm skills with a purpose to look at behavior change and focusing on change talk and the positives of, of how it might be and being more aware of your practice and the goals of it so you know th th there's a whole range and i think the challenges both for the bps model but also for psychologically informed practice the challenge is knowing kind of what's enough and what what's enough and how do you get competent doing it and i think that's still a bit out for debate but the underlying i suppose the values underlying it are that people are, if you're interested in psychologically informed practice you're interested in incorporating kind of patients beliefs attitudes thoughts emotions their their motivations and how they're feeling and thinking about their condition you're interested in engaging with that to promote prevention of disability essentially not not probably not so much to change pain but prevention of disability and that interest yeah can be across the spectrum i don't think you can have, you can get away with consultations which don't involve psychology whether you deny it or not or fearful of it or not 
Um, and I think the challenge is still with the recent guidelines with the you know BPS, it's still a question of, well, what does it really mean to be one of them? And what training do you need to be competent of one of them? I think the challenge is how much training do you need for competence? And I suppose my view about that now is that actually the kind of model, the CPD model where you do a day and go and fiddle about at home and in your clinic and have a go, and then you come back and report back. My hunch is that's probably not enough. And like other behavioral change clinical learning models, you need to be in a setting where you get mentored and you can model people's behavior. You can look at people doing it well. You can look at yourself and have feedback not doing it so well or doing it, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think you need some integration and some focused exposure and learning in a clinical setting uh, that to do it well. But, but I suppose, although I'm a big advocate for it, I can't help but reflect upon the excitement of the early days and lots of cohort studies have done this identifying your target to make back pain treatment better but actually if you look at the interventions you you know you can always say this they're not trained enough to do it really well to target this that and the other but actually you look at the trials and apart from a few outliers like the bipherson trial and some of the cognitive functional therapy stuff you know the effect sizes are still a bit disappointing you know, even even the pain education stuff it comes back in a child bit. So these things come up with great excitement, um, high facebility. Ah, oh, this makes sense. And it's even with the fear avoidance stuff, I mean, maybe we'll talk about that review. You know, it's all really exciting. Really makes sense. Gosh, that's it. And it's got great face validity for you as a clinician. And you think, oh, no, this this really, well, certainly I'm, I'm talking my experience. Yes, this is it. You know, I'm going to be able to sort these out. And actually, it rolls in. It makes you feel, makes me feel more competent as a clinician and have more capability to work with folks. But I recognize overall probably the trial evidence has been disappointing over the last 30 years. <laughs> Um, in terms of progress treating back pain. And do, do you get a sense of why why it doesn't pan out, that enthusiasm or that face validity doesn't pan out in the, in the trial data? So why, you know, these models are so seductive, aren't they, in terms of um, their, their plausibility and, as we said, their, their validity, but but is it is it the design of the studies? They're not capturing the interaction of some of these factors adequately? Yeah, it, it's always tempting. The, the, it's always tempting the the apologists' temptation, and you, you know, at the beginning of this, said, "Oh no, I really be you know straight, <laughs> shoot from the hip." <laughs> um, I, I so it's always tempting with with all trials. The apologists would go, "Look, it's the design that's problematic," and then that's number one. Number two is it's not the design; it's the competence of the practitioners. You know, oh, that's not how I do it, or the the intervention wasn't quite good enough, or they weren't trained enough. Now, all of those things, you, you can't rule them out. You can't rule them out. But my 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 hunch is is just that that these non-specific conditions, you know, whatever they are, uh, in MSK, you know, shoulder, neck, back, whatever, uh, are very multifactorial, very complex. And they have confounding and interacting pathways, which make any kind of simple targeted intervention kind of difficult to target. Mm. 
because they're so multifactorial. And I, I suppose I I reconcile myself with the um, can't remember what it's called. The, you know, the Sky Cycling Team do it. Um, I can't remember the name for it. You, you look for like a five percent improvement or one percent improvement. You know, multiple multiple little gains. And I kind of think that's where we are with back pay. You know, it's reasonable on lots of levels to to be a good, competent, psychologically informed practitioner. It's also reasonable to be good at promoting exercise and activity and, and behavioural change. I also think it's reasonable to be a you know a manual therapist to provide some short term pain relief uh, and comfort. It's reasonable to be good at reassurance. But none of these things, either in silos or together sort out the problem with a huge effect in a in a group of people with back pain of course minimally important changes for individuals within a trial group you know some people might be fantastic responders but you know all our attempts to look at responder analyses and identify and categorize cohorts um, with, with clear um, characteristics for sub-intervention subgroups you know these are the flavor of the people with back pain who do really well with this actually you know, we're still, whatever, 30 years on over my career, we're still not really able to do that. And the best attempt we've had probably is, you know, Jonathan Hills and colleagues at Keel's work to stratify care by risk of poor prognosis. That offers some hope, but again, it's, it's no panacea, is it? You know, the trials are mixed as they come out across the world and it kind of works a bit. The, the trials just come out now that it doesn't seem to work. Uh, Kika. Uh, Constantino Keel has recently published a trial in Sciatica saying actually stratifying care using this tool doesn't seem to be um, give any extra benefit. So it's unendingly messy. It's not like a nice pathognomonic illness like, you know, broken artery, throw it up, appendicitis. Well, appendicitis, I think, is a little bit of uncertainty. I like a nice broken bone that you immobilize and fix and it kind of heals or, you know, you know those, those kind of nice, clear kind of breakdowns our stuff is really messy and fuzzy and i vacillate between saying um you know small gains are worth having and thinking despairingly actually the epidemiology of back pain things haven't got better over 30 years it's still awful um and and loads of people are disabled and distressed profoundly by persistent back pain you mentioned reassurance before and this might be a good Segue into the paper that you were that you were part of with Tamar Pincus looking at effective and cognitive reassurance in relation to outcomes in primary care. And I just would really like to talk about that, partly because it's an excellent paper and it's another paper which is really well cited and personally had a was really informative for, for me. And so maybe if you could introduce the concept of reassurance in relation to MSK care and how those two if you like, categories of reassurance and some of the outcomes or the, the, the results that you found from that systematic use in terms of outcomes? Yeah, but, you know, that, that is the one I didn't read before coming back to the, <laughs> this podcast. But no, I, I kind of got that in my head. Again, that was with um, Tamar and and with a colleague, one of a PhD student at the time. Just to give a, just a kind of date stamp, the, the paper, it was 2013 in the journal Pain. And it was with Pinkus et al. And as you said, Martin Underwood was, was on there too. And so I'll link these papers in the show notes just so people can go to them and, and kind of cross-reference exactly how you're going to describe them now. I, I suppose 
my interest in that paper or that work derived, and Tamara and I spent lots of time talking about that one and the model we produced, it derived from some of my clinical observations about actually some things that seem to work very well sometimes are, are kind of what I construed in naivety as reassurance and sometimes didn't work at all, which were also reassurance. And so, you know, my attempts to be reassuring could come, could land definitely at times as dismissal rather than reassurance. <laughs> and I also kind of read transcripts of consultations and stuff and also made the observation that reassurance sometimes is targeted at the practitioner themselves. So actually, patient isn't really worried about red flags and cauter equina and having cancer and stuff. And then the practitioner will then reassure them hugely about not having, you know, any of these profound pathologies that could kill them. And they hadn't even thought twice about it. So I was kind of interested in that that process and that business of how you how you wrap up a consultation. In terms of the actual piece of work, I mean, you mentioned who they were. I mean, the bottom line was what we wanted to look at was to do a good review of the literature on back pain and reassurance. And then we quickly found there wasn't enough material. So we spread it out a bit. And um, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but listeners can always check up the paper. But we spread it out to sort of other non-specific conditions like back pain. So I think we included IBS, non-specific chest pain, that kind of stuff. And we we use Kaya and Stephen Morley, who, who sadly died last year, I think it was last year, had written an editorial. Now, what's popping into my mind is something I chatted tomorrow about this, you know, is, is it's really probably, and still to this day, apart from the work Tamar's done and Noah Ben-Ami have, have moved on to do as well and, and others, it's probably the most prevalent intervention used in healthcare and probably one of the least researched in healthcare is reassurance of some form or another, whatever that thing might mean. I mean, Kerr and Morley um, had some interesting observations. They wrote an editorial, um, can't remember the date of the editorial, and they kind of divided it up into this notion of affective, um, affective to do with, you know, the affect, the, the, the business of developing empathy, you know, being there for the patient, showing you care, you know, don't worry, that, that kind of stuff, generic general reassurance. Uh, being very different from cognitive reassurance and cognitive reassurance being typified by things like giving patients the ability to understand what's going on, the cognitions and thoughts to understand, but not just understand the prognosis and of the like, but also to have some um, actions they can do for their own self-management. And the, the, those things were construed of differently. And so what we did was we, we essentially took the papers and, and coded them, coded the interventions in terms of affective and cognitive. And in a nutshell, we, we've, we found that the, the cognitive uh, seemed to have a better impact on outcomes. And there was a bit of a, there was almost a bit of a, a warning signal coming through from the um, affective, the empathy stuff. Um, that it actually might not be so helpful. And 
I think uh, Morley or us had, had suggested that there might be an important way in a consultation that you distinguish between these two processes. So whilst you might use kind of empathy and rapport building, reassurance and behaviour during the consultation, they kind of suggested that it's good to take a step back when you're wrapping up the consultation and you're taking a more cognitive approach to a bit more of um, a distanced or a bit more of a teacherly approach, being an educator, step back from it. So if you're talking about, I don't know, self-management and the role of exercise or looking at finding solutions that the patient may be coming up with some activity type solutions to get them moving, you know, in the middle of that, throwing in a, you know, but whatever happens, I know it's been awful for you, you know, and I'll be there for you. That kind of stuff isn't helpful. Uh, and I suppose the underpinning idea behind that is that the affective stuff is short-lived. You know, spending time, if you're treating me, Ollie, spending time with your brilliant and caring, empathetic skills will make me feel great at the time. But might, because it's short-lived, when my symptoms come back, I haven't got any strategies afterwards, and you're not with me anymore, all I can do is wait till I see you again, and then I'll be all right. So, you know, the two- or three-day halo effect of seeing a really caring practitioner um, if that's all you've got, it might be limiting. Whereas if you've got more cognitive strategies, when the symptoms come back, you've mm. got some notion of understanding what's wrong and having some ideas, things that you can do yourself to cope. It's not all in the hands of the lovely practitioner who's going to look after you. And the corollary, which I can never say, of that is that um, if, you, if you focus on the affective without the cognitive, and you, your practice is, is really in the affective zone, you might well be not helping people develop their own self-efficacy and coping skills and might impinge on their prognosis. But the big question here is the relationship between the two. And I don't think that's 100% clear yet, uh, although there is some qual data which suggests that one mediates the other. So I used to talk to Tamar about this um, and the Turner phrase is that I pulled out from wherever I got it from is that patients don't care what you know until they know that you care. Yeah. So if you're going to do the cognitive stuff, they don't care what you know. If you're trying to give them strategies or create strategies with them, they don't care about that stuff and they've, they've got an authentic relationship with you. And in our model that we produced in that paper, that, that complex model that we produced in that paper, we've got question marks about the mediation bit. I think even back then, but more so now, I'm more convinced that, that what, what you do need is you need the affective empathy rapport building stuff in order to provide credibility and authenticity to the cognitive stuff at the end of the consultation. And you can flip it. You can imagine just purely adopting, if this is a, you know, it's a bit of a thought experiment, purely adopting a cognitive reassuring approach where you just, where your strategies are just devoid of any empathy or warmth. Um, I forget that what, what the condition is that where you've got, you've got no emotions, whether you can engage in some of these educational strategies or cognitive strategies in a very sterile, dispassionate way that, it, it begins with A. Alexithemic. Alexithemic. There we go. Um, no, look, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I was chatting to this someone, you know, another thing that I kind of do because I did this work on adverse events. Um, 
you know, I sometimes, and consent and stuff, I sometimes get uh, recommended to people facing professional conduct hearings um, because they've had some sort of breach of behaviour. And some of these are around violations or alleged violations of, of boundaries as opposed to crossing of boundaries. And one of the things I talk to them about is, is that continuum, which I think you're alluding to. Uh, and uh, there is a style of relating continuum. You, you can have a balance in the middle and then one end, you've got overly close, entangled and over-involved with the patient in the relationship. And the other end of the continuum is kind of a distant absence of empathy and rapport. Um, and of course, we're, we're all on that continuum. And I think in our consultations, in our consultations across the board, um, if we're a mature, reflective practitioner, we'll be able to adopt our model of practice appropriately uh, to meet the needs of the individual patient, and we'll be flexible about those. Uh, but clearly, our underlying disposition will be somewhere on that continuum. And I think you, I, everyone have, has met other healthcare practitioners along that continuum, and, and some people might be feel like they're pushing your boundaries by being overly interpersonal, maybe, or too close. And others might be, don't care a damn. I remember Tamar telling me one anecdote about reassurance, which was funny when we think about the complexities of it, talking about consultations and actually how a consultation, an extraordinarily reassuring consultation from a GP was construed of as being really reassuring because there was little or no eye contact. And the person telling the tale said, actually, in this instance, I knew there was nothing seriously wrong. I was worried about there being something seriously wrong because the GP didn't seem to have much interest, didn't look at me, wasn't concerned at all. I found their lack of interest and concern reassuring. And that's just an example of how complicated this area is. The, the, the difficulty with you know, all of these things, and I've recently looked at empathy and rapport on, on video consultations working with David and Jerry. I think you had a podcast with David about it. I was trying to look at the, the empathy and rapport kind of evidence for consultations like that. And, and what you see, a little bit like psychological factors, if we talk about them again more later, I don't know. A little bit like that, you know, empathy, rapport, reassurance, communication skills, all of those things, they're, they're overlapping constructs, you know, distress, depression, anxiety, self-efficacy, prognostic thinking, <laughs> you know, lots of these. I mean, Nadine um, and colleagues did a, a really nice paper, um, I don't know, 2010, which is a big cohort, looking at the variants of all these things, how they overlap, how the constructs, you know, overlap. And she ended up saying that like, prognostic thinking, I can't remember, prognostic thinking, kind of self-efficacy, weak beliefs about personal sense of control around symptoms and activity and control of pain are, are big predictors. But they, she made the point that all these things are enmeshed and overlapping. They're not a bit, bit like going back to the complexities of non-specific pain and problems. You know, they're not how we want to divide them up as being, okay, this is depression in pain. You know, think about how you measure depression in pain. You know, lack of sleep associated with depression 
lack of sleep associated with turning over a bed in pain. You know, you know these are overlapping. You know, um, feeling a sense of self worth, lack of self worth because you can't do normal things you can do because you're in pain, is different from a kind of clinical depression, self worth. I'm useless and guilty. You know, those kind of concepts associated with proper inverted commas clinical depression are different from distress associated with with being bereft of your normal life with pain so all these concepts are, are complicated and they make reviewing um reviewing and understanding this stuff difficult and if you're lucky enough to get some clarity about some of the some of the concepts you, you're kind of doing well so i think the pip the reassurance, the empathy, the rapport, the cognitive, you know, pain education, all of that. So these are all kind of related fields, slightly carved up a little bit differently, but there's overlap in all these things. So you're one of the calmest people I know, so, and probably the most measured <laughs> in terms of, yeah, whenever you, you know, I get pretty riled up, don't I? And I often kind of barge into your office, just steam coming up my ears, and you often just sit there. Or we ha we both experience something on social media i think you're taking calmness with me nodding off or not you know when you're when you're off on one <laughs> you know ranting i just oh sorry yes <laughs> well, we, we might experience something on social media and you know i'm i'm about to do a kind of game of thrones king joffrey throwing himself out the window and you just are far more considered in your reaction to that but what I'm, you know, what does annoy you, or what really frustrates you in relation to either, you know, back pain care or manual therapy, or what what does frustrate you? Um, that, that that that's a, a big question. So I've, yeah, a big frustration I've touched on already is is I can't help but reflect on the progress made in terms of kind of outcomes and effectiveness of treatment over the years that. You know, I've been a clinician and indeed been involved to some extent with research. I find it frustrating that we haven't got further. You know, that, that you know, I've just said the pathway is great and some of this stuff is really good. But on the other hand, we look at the epidemiology, look at the Lancet series of papers recently from Nadine and Jan Hartzvigs and, and Martin and others. Um, you look at that review and kind of, there's, look, there's a great summary there, but actually there's so much more to do. <laughs> so I get a bit frustrated about that. I get frustrated by, by kind of just poorly premised, evidenced, argued claims made on social media. Um, I get frustrated by people not just kind of reading, keeping up to date. Um, I suppose the long game, and it might also be a reflection of where I'm at my career and uh, having seen sort of cycles of things, maybe I would have been more passionate and more fired up um, some 15, 20 years ago. Um, but actually, you know, just generally, I think it's dispositional for various reasons. I've got a fairly flat affect um, and introduced to sort of, you know, not meditation, but kind of mindfulness as a, a, a in my teens, and although maybe not practicing it formally, but dipping in and out of that kind of stuff, uh, I suppose I I on a good day I can kind of hear and feel the hot air and realise that it will pass <laughs> and choose to engage or not engage. Sometimes I you know sometimes I can't help it. 
but I, I suppose, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I suppose really, it, it's people who who make claims without having a bit of a context, just doing a little bit of thinking, a little bit of reading other people's work who have thought about things really hard and been there. Um, so I find that frustrating. Some of the dialogues on social media, um, you know, invariably. And, and it's it's frustrating that it's very hard to hard to change things. In fact, weirdly, I, I did a debate with a, a colleague a few years ago. I can't remember the topic. Something about evidence and principles and this, that and the other. And that was a frustrating debate. And oddly, just this morning, someone, someone emailed me and said, oh, I, I watched your debate with so-and-so and made me interested in your publications. Could you send me all these publications? So, yeah, I suppose these things do have an impact. I think mostly discussions on social media don't, don't really lead to change. There are dispositional differences. Um, I mean, you see this now. You know, I, it's a little bit like the politics of Brexit, the politics of COVID now. You know, people uh, have different positions. And I, I think sometimes people haven't thought about where their position, what their implications of their position is, or what the underpinning stuff is. Um, you know, so that's frustrating. So I, I suppose what, what was always interesting about kind of reviewing some of the psychological stuff was both the, gosh, this was exciting and innovative when it came out, <laughs> and reflecting on that, but also feeling a bit dispirited when I put that, you know, when I read the line from the 2002 review, the BPS model is gaining ground, you know, and I thought about, what are we, 2020 now? <laughs> How long that is, 18 years ago? And actually, it's only really gaining ground now where it is the kind of model of choice and people are thinking about it. Um, it's so hard to know where it, you know, it's such a, we, we all operate in such an echo chamber and, but, you know, purely from kind of my reality, it's it's pretty much, it invades every part of my professional and life whether it's clinical practice of students of colleagues of social media of podcasts it's kind of everywhere but i recognize that that's purely my own my own small kind of chamber and it's hard to to to, to know actually what where it is or how to what what progress has been made is it still just an emerging model or is it beginning to kind of root itself in just everyday clinical practice where it becomes the standard your lens by which the clinician will kind of help you out. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a good I think it is kind of getting there now. It's the standard, you know, it's a bit like it if you frame it as what's socially desirable, I think probably now labeling yourself as BPS is probably socially desirable right now. And that's taken a long time. Um there's a bit of resistance. I mean thinking about the stuff we haven't talked about the kind of attitudinal stuff I was involved with with Tamar developing scales for attitudes to back pain and stuff with Jerry around um you know doing his stuff that he led around uh e-learning intervention to change attitudes and behavior I mean that that stuff's very interesting when we we started doing attitudes to back pain scale when we developed that and it, it, that that stuff sort of came out of the the collaboration really saying well actually you know, if BPS approaches are important, you know, do people have the attitudes and attitudes you could argue is a prerequisite to behavior. So we start with attitudes. 
And because defining behavior in this respect is flipping hard, that's still a problem, is measuring BPSness. You know, how do you do that? You know, what's that about? How do you operationalize that? And then that's also a long way from you've got attitudes, BPSness, the behavior, then you've got outcomes. And, and, and doing an intervention that promotes BPS, going right down to outcomes, there's a lot of pathway there, a lot of dilution effects, a lot of difficulty and confounders in there. Um, but I, I yeah, yeah I, I, I suppose the next question will be around the evolution of that. And people are beginning to uh, think a bit more, a bit harder about BPS. I remember the person we haven't mentioned is Steve Tyman, who's a big influence um, as a philosopher about that. And he was he was very suspicious of the BPS model and said he didn't really capture it. And the three, the kind of, I think his critique was based around the three-legged model and um, it doesn't give you that integration and the risk of siloing behaviours and targeting individuals rather than having an integrated approach is there and strong. When we talked earlier about the flexibility from being distant and remote to being overly emerged and um, overly proximal to the patient, uh, I think that flexibility around BPS is, is the, that same continuum issue. Uh, and what you want to do is be flexible and responsive to the patient's material needs, preferences and values. And that that's um, beholden to the practitioner to have that flexibility and that maturity of their practice style that they can adapt effectively to the situational needs of the patient. And you've got to be interested in those things in the first place. You've got to elicit those somehow. So, yeah, yeah. Or be attuned to the lack of need to elicit them. <laughs> or the, the lack of interest or preference or the, you know, that it, that, that it isn't required in this setting, this circumstance, or you know, there's something else going on here. Uh, and, and being live to that, that kind of intuition and, you know, making those, those, you know, those gestures, those spontaneous gestures, as Sean would say, you know, being being alive to them happening in the moment, which comes back a little bit to being calm and mindful and being aware metacognitively of what's going on in that moment. Um, I certainly say that to folks that I work with um, about when they're, when they're facing difficulties. It, 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 it's that reflection in action that's so important and being alive to those moments in clinical practice where a little trigger or a little something comes up and just not going, oh, I've been lost path for years, this doesn't matter, oh, I'm not affected by this, or, you know, just just pausing and saying, well, what's that about? You know, is there a response there? Just in that moment, especially when, when you know, it's a slippery slope and there's a little bit of an anxious flag coming up, this isn't quite going right and not just plowing on, you know, that kind of stuff. Psychologically informed practice is, is having an insight in your own psychology as well as the obviously the patients. Yeah, absolutely. Doing that that pre-metacognitive work of even preparing yourself for the consultation, I think is very important. You know, you've had one, you've hopefully been immersed. You know, David Taylor Riley, who's a homeopathic doctor from the RCCM years ago, I think he's probably still um, practicing and around. Uh, but he used to talk about the healing moment. Um and he described the exquisite business that I think if you're lucky enough in clinical practice, you do get sometimes where the kind of room gets small 
and you become less aware a little bit, you know, same as kind of hitting the perfect forehand or whatever it might be, a bit back to Sean, the, the, you know, the perfect gesture. Where he talks about the room getting small and you're having this intense interaction with the patient where you just know it's really clicking, you're right in the zone. Probably, you know, both, you know, a very high level of empathy and rapport going on there. Um, and, and just being kind of those those moments of those moments of magic that sometimes occur, um, and you know how you can prepare for those. But once you've been in those, you don't want leakage the next consultation. You need to clear your head. You know the last person who was late or grumpy, who you didn't quite click with, or you felt out of your depth with, or the reason you didn't like seeing them and you didn't know what to do with them, or you're desperate the next day searching on Google to figure out what you should really be doing or, or asking colleagues, I've just got someone with X, Y, and Z, what should I do, help? I've never seen one before. Well, probably think maybe you shouldn't see them or send them somewhere else or whatever it might be. But just clearing and resetting, rebooting the computer, clearing the RAM, getting ready for the next person, I think is also an important part of informed practice. And indeed, supervision, I think, is is useful, at least regular peer-to-peer chat about what's going on to check check you haven't gone off into a, a bit of a dark alley um, that is probably not good practice. Well, I think it's a pretty good positive note to finish up on, you know. Ish, a little bit ambiguous, dark alley, bad place to practice, but <laughs> I see what you mean, yeah, no. Promoting reflective practice and being alert to, to what's going on, I think, is a good good place to it. Yeah, and I spoke to Maxie Michiak, who's obviously done a lot of work on therapeutic relationships and alliance, and she describes it as landing. You know, you land with a patient when you're kind of calm. You recognise that this patient is different to your last patient you you saw five minutes ago. Um, she has a really nice way of describing it, which I think comes from the, the psychotherapeutic yeah. field. Yeah, no, I think, well, I think I suspect like you, I think some of these things are the biggest determinants of outcomes that rapport and a uh, rapport and authenticity and relationship building communication all of those build on to the things that are effective um and they are part of the effectiveness and, and that's the problem for clinicians you know you look back at your encounters and of course the outcome is very different from the effectiveness of your intervention you know the outcome's got a natural history in it it's got the non-specifics, it's got placebo, it's got regression to the mean, it's got a load of stuff in it, and a tiny little slither at the top, which is what you capture in the trials, <laughs> is the actual effectiveness bit. And so, yeah, some of that other stuff, it, it's, it's really good to optimise that stuff and be clear about that. And I think those are core to being a therapist or a practitioner. It, it's, it's something to do with authenticity, credibility, time, um, a genuine attempt to invest in the individual and what's going on with them uh, and being aware of your limitations and your strengths and, and how you can, might construct a pathway or a cunning plan, as Baldrick would say, a cunning plan that you can construct with your patient together um, to move from A to B. And you might not quite get to B or you end up going you know, somewhere else to C or something else, but, but as long as it's an authentic journey uh, and it's consensual, and explicit and tacit it's it's probably a journey worth making thanks to you that's brilliant no it's good thanks for your time and thanks for inviting me if you enjoyed this podcast visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes resources and blogs 
and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.